On August 7th, the Milne Ice Shelf, located on the north coast of Ellesmere Island at the northernmost reaches of this country, collapsed. It was the second largest ice shelf in the Arctic. The cause? Global warming. And another span of ice is at risk on the Baffin Bay side of the island. It's one of the most biologically diverse and historically important areas for an entire peoples. I'm Adam Toy. And I'm Dave McIver. And this is Why. That's the trailer for The Last Ice, a new documentary from National Geographic that looks of the lives of the Inuit near the Northwater Polynya between Ellesmere Island and Greenland. Scott Rassler is the director and producer of The Last Ice documentary coming up on National Geographic. Thanks for joining us, Scott. Thank you so much for having me. Scott, this documentary, it uh, looks at uh, the stories of two young Inuit who are, you know, fighting for their survival in the north, uh, Canada and uh, Greenland's north. Um, I'm wondering what you knew about the Inuit way of life before going to film with them. I knew nothing. And so when we started making this film, it was uh, 2015, and it had started, the idea was really to tell a story about climate change and sea ice loss and the effect on the, the wildlife in the Arctic. And it was very quick, I think the, maybe the first or second shoot when we had first gone into Inuit communities and were out on the ice that we realized this is really a story about people and how this is affecting uh, communities as the ice melts and you have all these outside interests coming in looking for extraction of resources like oil or faster shipping routes. That's a story that hasn't been told on uh, the world stage in terms of uh, you know documentaries from places like National Geographic. And so what we really tried to do is to uh, put into perspective what the ice loss actually means for the people it's going to affect most, put that into context, and then show how it's going to affect the rest of the world as well. So try to draw a thread through all these disparate elements. The Milne Ice Shelf, the last one that was intact in Canada, collapsed over this summer. Uh, that's just one example of uh, of, of this, this area that uh, you were saying has... Um, you know, that these Inuit people, 100,000, I think 60, 60 plus thousand in Canada, uh, more than 100,000 uh, internationally. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering what the collapse of these ice shelves, the shrinking of this ice area means to them, because if, if I think that the stereotype is it's kind of their land. Yeah. So, I mean, there's there's no shortage of stories like the ice shelf collapsing, and it's all part of a larger picture. I mean, if you take a big step back and look at sort of the data, the, the, the trend is just getting worse and worse. I think that there's a, a couple different ways that this affects Inuit specifically. 
Obviously, there's a very direct effect, especially in communities where people are still living uh, with subsistence hunting. You know, the cost of living in the north is astronomically high uh, with uh, importing goods and food. So it really isn't just sort of a, a you know, cultural thing. It's still very much a, a means of survival. But um, with the ice changing, the ice becoming thinner, the ice becoming less predictable, uh, hunters are falling through the ice and some, you know, tragically losing their lives. And these aren't... Um, uh, you know, amateurs. These are seasoned hunters who have been doing this for, for decades and have learned from people through generations. So that's sort of a primary effect. Now there's a secondary effect of all the, the outside interests I mentioned earlier. So you have oil and gas companies, mining companies, uh, uh, you know, industrial fisheries. Um, you have uh, people looking for faster shipping routes. And as the ice is melting, uh, this area is really, really attractive from a profit standpoint. So, you know, you have people coming in who's sort of, um, uh, they're looking at short-term profit-driven motives, which don't really uh, always align with uh, communities who are trying to preserve um, for the next centuries a way of life or even just a, a way of survival. Scott, you talk about the people up there, and I just want to ask, about 15 minutes into the film, you see a young man, and he's putting on what looks to be pants that are made from the hide of an animal. And the Inuit people, they rely so much on the resources from the land and wildlife up there. If wildlife can't survive, how do the Inuit people survive without that resource? That's the big question. And so the, the film is called The Last Ice, because the, this area between Nunavut and Canada and Greenland is uh, known as the last ice area. And it's where all the ice is melting toward. Because by 2040, scientists are predicting that there won't be any summer sea ice left. So as the ice melts toward this one area, the wildlife that's ice dependent is also migrating with the ice to this area. So it's become this extremely fragile but important uh location it's almost like i've heard it uh, compared to the serengeti in africa where it's just all the wildlife's going to be concentrated so it, it becomes a lot more precious and a lot more um uh, fragile so it's it's really you know if the wildlife goes away um you know it's kind of remains to be seen how it's going to affect communities but one thing that the film tries to leave you with is a sense of hope because Inuit both in Nunavut and in Greenland have proposed this co-managed area called the Pikalasorsuak, which is really about taking that one place that is uh, of vital importance and just putting restrictions on it, uh, making sure that it's not gonna be overexploited, making sure that it will be able to uh, continue to provide sustainable benefits for people. So I think that that's one way that The Last Ice is different from other climate change documentaries. There's actually uh, a solution that's uh, tangible and achievable. Scott, maybe you get further into this in the in the documentary, but I'm wondering about that area of ice that uh, is essentially going to be like the last ice cube in a in a in a cold drink. Um, the the these people's lobbying efforts in order to make this a protected area. How have those gone? Are they are these people being heard? So there has been a recommendation that has been made um, from Inuit, both actually Inuit across all the entire Arctic, but you know the specific areas in Nunavut and Greenland to protect this area. Now, the Canadian federal government and uh, the Greenlandic government by way of Denmark also have to approve this. And that is sort of where uh, it is in the process right now. Um, that's one hope we have for The Last Ice as a film is that maybe, um, you know, the right people will see it and maybe they'll be motivated um, 
toward toward action uh, when they see you know, the context in which this area resides. You're joining us from Washington, D.C. I'm wondering if you got into the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission and some of their findings and some of the aspects of how this threat to Inuit livelihoods and sovereignty really uh, is, you know, if if they're applying to the Canadian government, who under Justin Trudeau have made a commitment to the truth and reconciliation findings, if that was part of the the conversation of the the, uh, documentary at all, or if that's maybe just a a wider piece uh, more in, you know, within the Canadian politics? Well, I think that putting this present moment into historical perspective was incredibly important for the film. And, you know, we use sort of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's findings and uh, suggestions as a guide somewhat. Uh, And in the film, we do go into the history of uh, the colonialism in Nunavut specifically, in Greenland as well a little bit, and how you can sort of draw a line between some of the past policies, some of the ongoing policies, and some of the reasons that maybe Inuit have been left Uh, out of the international conversation in the past decades, even today. Um, But then also we trace the the sort of, um, you know, land claims movement and, uh, you know, all these incredible Inuit organizations that have evolved over the last decades to really uh, fight for and get seats at the table and and get land claims. And so I think that um, without understanding that history, uh, it's impossible to sort of understand you know, where Inuit are sitting today in terms of uh, their ability to, to, to fight the effects of climate change and, and look to the future. But, but ultimately, I think it's, it's really an inspiring story in, in the film and one that uh, if people are watching it and are like me, had no idea about any of this, um, you sort of walk away with a lot of hope and not just, um, you know, sort of rooting and cheering uh, for the Inuit, but also uh, trying to figure out ways to actively support them. So, Scott, what what future do you think um, young Inuit face with with the shrinking ice mass? Well, I think there's, uh, you know, different levels of um, uh, sort of threat. And, you know, I can only speak on behalf of Inuit I spoke to, young Inuit I spoke to, but in the film, you know, we follow two main subjects, uh, a younger woman in Nunavut, Matliokalik, and uh, a young hunter in, in Greenland, Alakatsiak Perry. And they have very different sort of uh, threats from the ice melting. Alakatsiak is trying to become a hunter. He grew up partially in Denmark, and now he's trying to, uh, you know, live this lifestyle. And so for him, the ice melting is uh, very much a, an immediate issue. You know, he can't learn, his uncle's trying to teach him and he can't read the ice in the same way as he used to. And, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's not, uh, it can't be sort of passed along in the same way. And the hunting grounds that his uh, father and grandfather used to hunt at, he can't reach anymore. Now for Motley and Nunavut, there's more of an, an existential threat. You know, the, the ice melting is sort of uh, uh, upending sort of a, a tie to a lot of cultural traditions. Um, that, you know, while they won't go away if the ice melts, um, it certainly uh, isn't made easier. But I think that, you know, the ice is melting. And so I think that really the, the bigger threat is outsiders. And the bigger threat is, are, is the international community going to sort of sit by and not pay attention as uh, profit-driven 
um, you know, business comes in and, and tries to exploit this area. And in some instances, try to, tries to exploit people as well. There would be some people who are listening right now who would say, well, this is just progress. This is just change. Can't these Inuit youth just um, embrace this change? And for any jobs that come along, if it's in transport or if it's in, you know, resource extraction or even um, tourism that could come up, if you look at what happened in in northern Manitoba, uh, what's your, did you ask these uh, these Inuit of, you know, embracing this, this change? Uh, and what did they say? Yeah, I mean, I people have different opinions everywhere you go. And, you know, I spoke to a lot of people who were excited about change and uh, different opportunities that were coming in for the future. And, you know, I'm certainly not uh, speaking on behalf of anyone or saying what a different community should be doing. I think that really the message from the film is more for, uh, you know, the rest of the world to say, you know, what is your motivation here? And what is your sort of uh, measure of success when you're trying to work in the Arctic? Because I think what's happened a lot of times in the past and continues to happen today is that big projects are organized. uh, You know, a lot of money is invested. And then sort of at the last minute before everything's being done, they'll bring in, uh, you know, Inuit for consultation or, you know, uh, not have them been part of the process from the beginning. So it's really about, uh, making sure that all these decisions are being um, promoted, led, and uh, you know managed by the people who actually live in this area. You said that this has been, um, I mean, I guess, I guess a five-year uh, process of getting this this film now to broadcast. Uh, wondering um, how you've seen different policies and, you know, different, uh, 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 changes on the world front that, uh, can, that directly affect this, uh, this area. And if you see the changes that have happened recently as, as positive or negative. Well, the policies I've seen have been sort of slow moving. And, you know, the fact that I think the peak Sorsawak proposal was put up, uh, I think, two years ago now, and has still not been passed, um, is sort of indicative of the the speed of things that happen in the Arctic. Um, certainly, I think that, uh, you know, for better or for worse, COVID has uh, slowed things down a little bit in terms of international projects, but um, the, the pace certainly needs to be faster because uh, the ice is not going to be coming back anytime soon. I know that there's uh, been another organization, TED, who's put their their weight behind uh, trying to stop uh, or try to get back to net zero by 2030 is what they have been saying. And, and uh, to me, it kind of speaks to an increased, um, uh, what is it, uh, understanding knowledge of, uh, you know, just in general, in the, in the population in general, as far as what is happening to the world and what needs to change as far as global warming, climate change. Have you in, you know, your time with, with, uh, with National Geographic seen, uh, you know, more people get on board with the need to, to, to slow uh, greenhouse gas emissions? You know, I, I think that, you know, especially here in America, it still sort of falls along political lines. I know we've got some catching up to the rest of the world to do on that, but I think we're quickly uh, in the next uh, you know, 40 to 50 years, it's by necessity just going to become a, a more pressing issue because it's uh, going to start affecting everybody. So 
Uh, I haven't personally seen like an increase in, in people sort of understanding this, but we're all, our hands going to be forced sooner than later, unfortunately. Scott, what, what, what would be your, uh, the number one thing that surprised you the most doing this? Uh, you know, the number one thing that surprised me was just every community we went to. Um, we showed up with cameras and there's been a long history. Um, you know, I've talked a lot about the exploitation of, of businesses and uh, uh, governments, but there's also been a long history of exploitation from filmmakers and documentary filmmakers. And so, you know, of course, like a lot of people sort of uh, had some skepticism. Why are you here? Why are you filming? But once, uh, you know, we start talking a little bit, just the thing that surprised me was just how open everyone was and wanting to share their stories and, uh, you know, really get some of the messages that have been lost out for the rest of the world to hear. Scott, I guess my final question is then, why is it important for people who aren't Inuit for the rest of the world to protect the land? Well, you know, the Arctic is sort of the air conditioner of the world. And a lot of our weather patterns and a lot of uh, the things that are starting to affect us, um, when I say us, I mean the South, which is how Inuit refer to the rest of the world, um, they start in the Arctic. And so when you start to have a breakdown of the ice uh, and you start to have, um, you know, all these different patterns disrupted, you start seeing more things like wildfires in places you didn't have them before. You start seeing more hurricanes. You start seeing more extreme uh, weather. So it's it's not just uh, an Arctic problem. It's a worldwide problem. And I think that looking to Inuit and looking, you know, they've been ringing the alarm bells on climate change a lot longer than the rest of the world has. Uh, and looking to how they're trying to protect their resources, um, we should all be learning from it because it's going to be happening to the rest of the world soon. Um, I think that the, the genie is sort of out of the bottle in terms of reducing the ice melting uh, immediately. So we all have to look at what's the reality today, what's the reality in the next 10 years, and what can we actually do to help mitigate uh, the, the negative consequences. A quarter of all of the unexploited oil and gas reserves in the world are located in the Arctic. We're going to lose some species, there's no question about it. Without animals, we cannot survive. There certainly has been a breakdown of our way of life. Our language and our culture is so connected to our land, our water, and our ice. The stakes are so high for us. We're not going anywhere. The last ice premiere is on National Geographic in Canada on November 8th at 8 p.m. We will be sure to tune in. Thanks again for your time, Scott. This is Why is produced by me, Dave McIver, and Adam Toy. It's a national radio show and a podcast. You can reach us by email, thisiswhy at globalnews.ca and on Twitter at thisiswhy. If you like what you hear and want to hear more, make sure you subscribe to This Is Why so you never miss an episode. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Wash your hands, stay safe, and wear a mask. We'll see you soon.